few weeks ago, Tana and I took uh, a vacation uh, to New England. We flew into Boston, uh, which we love, love Boston for its clam chowder, uh, lobster, uh, Mike's uh, pastries, if you've ever been there, and also its history. Nothing to do with sports up there, by the way. Do they do sports in Boston? Uh, we, we did the, the normal tourist um, things, walking the Freedom Trail for a ways. Uh, on our way to Boston Common, uh, we, we passed two old cemeteries, uh, the Granary uh, bury, Burying Grounds, what they call it, and then the King's Chapel Burying Ground. Um, I noticed as we walked by, they were quite crowded. Kind of odd if you think about it for a cemetery. Why? Well, because there are some very famous people uh, buried there. Very famous in, in, our, uh, in our nation's history. Revolutionary heroes. I suspect the people visiting the graves there uh, were, were, were not because of the, the, their births or necessarily even their deaths, but because the lives lived were rather significant. Webster uh, defines an epitaph as, quote, an inscription on a tomb or a gravestone in memory of the person buried there. The idea is to write a, a tribute to the person trying to summarize the life lived in one succinct piece of prose or, or poetry. Now, I want you to think about that. Usually when we're walking through, perhaps you've done that, when you're walking through um, a, a graveyard looking at tombstones, what is it that you look at? Date of birth, uh, date of death, maybe the name to see if they share your name. But really, what really matters is the little hyphen that separates the two dates. Well, what matters is, is what that person accomplished in life. Well, the epitaph, um, in a few short words, tries to describe the hyphen, uh, I mean, uh, uh, describe that hyphen or the person's life. One of my personal favorites from New York reads like this, here lies Harry Smith, who looked up the elevator shaft to see if the car was on the way down. It was... Nothing to do with his life. I just like the tombstone. Here's a question. If you could write your own epitaph for your tombstone, what would you like it to say? I'll let you think about that. Faithful father, devoted mother, worked hard, played harder, <laughs> talented athlete, Gifted artist, successful businessman, lifelong Republican or Democrat, committed pastor. Nothing, I suppose, necessarily wrong with those epitaphs. How do you want to be remembered? Understanding, of course, that your friends and family will likely write yours. Will they write what you want them to write? In other words, are you living in a way that you want to be remembered. What would the person next to you say about you right now? Outstanding characteristic of your life. We are studying the book of Hebrews and we've arrived at the very famous Hall of Faith in chapter 11. There the author lists many faithful people of the past and records, if you will, their epitaphs. There's a sense in which we're wandering through a, a graveyard. But I want to suggest they all had one thing in common. They were remembered for their faith. And, and so then maybe all of a sudden, maybe faithful follower of Jesus Christ might be a good epitaph. 
He lived, she lived by faith. Does that describe you? Outstanding quality, outstanding characteristic. Now remember, he, the author recorded these encouraging uh, uh, examples to us. Uh, others having run with perseverance, the race marked out for them. He, he records them to, to say, you can do it too. Yes, the Christian life is challenging, even difficult in the face of rising opposition, but don't quit. Come on, you, you can do it. Consider these who have and have demonstrated enduring faith. You remember he started the chapter with a definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction um, of things not seen. And, and we are finding that faith is an assurance, a conviction that, that actually we're going to find it actually impacts the way that we live our lives. Like there's, like there's actually something more important than what we see and what we often live for, to acquire, to obtain. Let me say it this way. It is one thing to say, yeah, well, I believe. I'm, I'm a Christian. It's an altogether different thing to live like we believe. He's, he gives us a list of very famous, faithful people. In fact, we've seen that the word faith is used 24 times in this chapter, 18 of those times with the words by faith. Again, not a bad epitaph. I, I, he, he lived, she lived by faith. Last week, incredibly, our author began with the words um, by faith, we. <laughs> he included us, his readers, in the hall of faith. How, how did we get there? By faith, we understand God created everything there is from things not seen. And we remember that's part of the definition of faith. Starting to understand that faith is not in what we see, but what we don't see. And yet, by eyes of faith, we know to be real. By faith, we understand there is a God of creation creating out of nothing, everything that is with his unheard word. I mean, there weren't any witnesses. We weren't there. Neither was anyone else. And yet we still believe. In other words, we've evidence in faith. Uh, we've evidence, evidence faith in things not seen by looking back to creation. Now he's going to encourage us to have the same faith in future things not yet seen. We then looked at the first name on the list, Abel, and the, the, the second son of Adam and Eve, and, and, and brother of Cain. And as the time of offering, remember it was the end of days, as the time of offering came, we found Abel brought a better sacrifice than Cain. How was it better? Well, some have suggested because it was a blood um, sacrifice, perhaps. But the author of Hebrews seems to rather zero in on Abel's faith. In some way, Abel believed in the God to whom he sacrificed. He he actually believed in a God he could not see. You see, there's no evidence that God walked with mom and dad, that is Adam and Eve, uh, in the evening, in the cool of the day, like he had done before the fall. In fact, it seems rather that their fellowship was somewhat broken. Meaning, I'm suggesting there's no evidence that Abel ever saw God. Cain either, for that matter, you or me. For that matter. And yet, and yet we believe Abel's was a better sacrifice. Comparing 
other scripture, we saw Cain had an evil heart, clearly lacking the requisite faith, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. By faith, Abel offered his sacrifice and obtained the testimony that he was righteous. The testimony of scripture is that we are declared righteous by our, by our faith. And Abel demonstrated his in a worship of faith. He worshiped a God he had not ever seen. In fact, he could not see. Here's the question this morning, is that enough? Do we, would you stop Hebrews 11 there? Is it enough? Let me ask you this way. Is it enough to come to church on Sunday, sing a few songs, pray some prayers, give some money, read some Bible, and, and then live our lives Monday through Saturday for ourselves? Or is there more? What will your epitaph say? It brings us to the third person on the list, you see, who further demonstrated a walk of faith. Don't, don't miss that. I'm suggesting that a right faith produces a, a, a right walk. In the last week, I suggested that there's a bit of a progression here. I don't know if the author intended it, but the author takes us, yes, through an Old Testament survey starting with creation, but then we see the following three men listed in order, Abel, who demonstrated a worship of faith, Enoch, a walk of faith, and Noah, a, a work of faith. Again, may not be intentional, but it highlights a truth. Faith does something. It changes us. Yes, we believe, but then we walk and we work like we believe. We are people of faith. Does this characterize your life? It brings us to the next person on the list. I've always been fascinated by this guy. Uh, in the, uh, the story that is told in just a few short uh, verses in Genesis chapter 5. And it is particularly amazing if you, under the con if you understand the context of Genesis chapter 5. You see, things are pretty awful uh, in the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis. In fact, those chapters are there to highlight the faithlessness, the faithlessness, the failure of all humanity. Well, Except for a few. As, 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 the, these significant failures, by the way, are, are, are three in, in number. We see the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. But in the midst of all of that evil, there are those who seem to rise to the top by faith. Abel last week in Genesis chapter 4, Enoch in chapter 5, and Noah in chapter 6. In the midst of evil, it is not too much to sur surmise in the midst of rising opposition. I mean, Abel, I think we can say, was opposed. He was murdered. I don't think it takes much imagination to suppose that Noah was opposed building a big boat a hundred miles from the nearest sea. And likely Enoch, who is living in the midst of a perverse generation, and we will find proclaiming their ungodliness. Very little written about Enoch. Really just his epitaph found in Genesis 5. Get that. His, his, his name on the tombstone was Enoch, and his epitaph was this. Enoch walked with God. Well, that's what it would say if we could find a tombstone. But here's the problem. Enoch doesn't have a tombstone. We'll come back to that in just a moment. As you are thinking of what you want your tomb, tombstone to, to read, can you think of anything better than that? Enoch walked with God. 
I, w- I would love for my tombstone to read that. What was it about Enoch's life that caused it to be recorded in the eternal pages of Scripture that he walked with God? Begin by reading uh, the couple of verses that, that mention him in Hebrews uh, 11 in our continuing study. Verse 5 says this, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I'm going to suggest that last part of that verse is suggest that you must believe in the God who is and you must come to him his way. Right off, you may notice the author of Hebrews does not specifically say that Enoch walked with God. Rather, uh, he had this witness, he had this testimony that he was pleasing to God. So let's go back and read his story in those few short verses in in Genesis chapter 5, which is really just the midst of a genealogy. But we begin reading in verse 18. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. I'm going to suggest that when you were walking in this morning, if I just stopped you and took a little survey and said, have you ever heard of Enoch? Some of you would have said yes. I would have said, have you, if I would have said, how many of you heard of Jared? Most of you would have said, um, is there a Jared in the Bible? Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Jared were 962 years. That seems rather significant, and he died. That's it. There's his epitaph. Will that be yours? He lived and died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Oh, I I know that name. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Genesis says he walked with God, but Hebrews says he pleased God. You say, well, certainly we please God by walking with him. But remember, I want to remind you that our author has a propensity to quote the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and when the when they translate the Old Testament, instead of saying he walked with God, it says he pleased God. They didn't like what are called anthropomorphisms where they assign human-like qualities to God and walking with God they didn't like, so they changed it to he pleased God. But this is the one that the author quotes, giving it biblical authority. I want you to think about this for a minute. If I were to ask you who is the oldest person who ever lived, do a little Bible trivia, you, you might say... Methuselah, the son of Enoch, who lived 969 years. The second oldest was Jared, the father of Enoch. They had some good genes going on, who lived 962 years, seven years different, missed it by that much. But actually, the oldest was Enoch, because he never died. He is many thousands of years old right now and counting. His tombstone, if it was there, would have the date of birth, the hyphen, but no date of death. By the way, there is only one other person in Scripture of whom it is said he did not face death. That is Elijah, who was taken up, same words, taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. 
Enoch was something special. Well, while we're at it, why don't we go ahead and read the third passage that mentions him in all of the scripture. Yes, Luke 3 mentions him in a genealogy, but just has his name. Jude, verses 14 and 15, say this. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way. Man, this guy was a preacher. And of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This prophecy likely has reference to the coming flood, but also ultimate fulfillment, most agree, in the second coming of Christ when he comes to judge. The point is, in each of these passages, I think we see a different aspect, a different characteristic of Enoch's walk that contributed to his epitaph, eternal epitaph, that he walked with God. Isn't that what you want yours to read? Then let's look at Enoch. First, in Genesis 5, we see he had a very consistent walk. In Hebrews 11, he had a walk by faith. That's important, a faithful walk. And then he, uh, third in Jude, we see he had a talking walk, a walk that talked. So bear with me this morning as I do something a little bit different. I don't normally go outside of our text. I'm going to do that this morning. We're going to look at those three um, passages beyond he, uh, he, to include Hebrews 11. Incidentally, before we get started with Enoch, you might be interested to know that there is only one other person in all of Scripture of whom it is said, post-fall, yes, Adam and Eve walked with God, only one other person in all of Scripture of whom it is said he walked with God. His name was Noah. He'll appear in the very next verse, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. But look at this first one who walked with God. What do we see that describes his consistent walk in Genesis 5? First, I want you to notice the quality of his walk. That is the way that his life is described. If you read, it's very interesting. If you read through the genealogies in Genesis 5, you will find a certain pattern. Uh, So-and-so was born, had a firstborn, that's the epitaph, and lived, uh, had other sons and daughters, lived so long and then died. That's it, not much. You probably couldn't name anybody besides Jared, Methuselah, and Enoch about right now. Not much of an epitaph. They lived, they begat, they died. So much for a tombstone. But of Enoch, it does not say that he lived um, for so many uh, more years. His, His living for so many years was not that important. What he did for a living, which is what is important to us, is what is important. His genealogy describes his time on earth as a walk with God. Think of that. Everyone else's genealogy in Genesis 5 speaks of duration, that is of quantity. Enoch speaks of quality. A mere 365 years, but he walked with God. He did not just die soon to be forgotten. His walk was so consistent that when people thought of him, when Moses thought of him and was writing Genesis chapter 5, he didn't just think of his progeny, hey, the oldest man who ever lived. No, he thought of a man who walked with God. Again, I ask you, what would the person next to you think of you if they were to write of you? When you first meet someone today, what is one of the first questions that you're just, you're just introduced. You're kind of talking, you know, chewing the vat, shooting the breeze. What is one of the first questions that you ask or they ask you? So what do you do for a living? And if we were honest, most of us live 
for that occupation. And if our epitaphs were correctly written, that is what they would say. Here lies John Smith, brickmason. Here lies Ralph Taylor, doctor. Or whatever, because the truth is, most of us, our lives are defined by what we do. How do you think people would respond if when asked that question, what do you do for a living, you responded with, I walk with God? And everything that I do supports that enterprise. That is what is said of Enoch. I'm reminded of the story of Stuart Briscoe, uh, a story that Stuart Briscoe told. He was a pastor up in, in, in Wisconsin, and it was a big church. And I remember he, telling the story, he told us a story about having met a lady he'd never met before in his church. And he was talking. He asked the inevitable question, what do you do? And she looked at him and said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a machine operator. Another way to see the consistency of his lifelong walk is in terms of quantity. But his is rather short in the midst of a bunch of really long lives. Notice the text says he walked with God after, I think that's interesting, after his son Methuselah was born at the age of 65. We don't know what, but something happened when Methuselah was born. Children will do that for you, especially if you have one when you're 65. Something happened, and he then walked with God until God took him. In fact, it appears that he walked so closely with God on earth that one day God said, that's enough, I think I will now walk with you in heaven. Think about that 300 years he walked with God. That could be said of him. When did you become a Christian? Age 7, 10, 15, 20? Have you been walking with God faithfully since 40, 50, 60 years? Enoch is an encouragement that by grace through faith, we can. We can actually walk with God faithfully for decades. Can I share that one of the things that I've noticed as a pastor, just no extra charge, one of the things I've noticed for many years as a pastor is that in our older years, our waning years, if you will, it seems that our commitment seems to Christ and his church seems to wane. People who were greatly committed to Christ, say in their 20s and 30s, and, and his church served faithfully and well in their early years, often, they often burn out. Or frankly become, I want to say this very gently, self-focused in their empty nest or retirement years. Those of you in your 40s and 50s and 60s, I know we return when we get in our 70s because, hey, we're getting close. (laughs) But those of you, I'm talking to those of you in your decades of your 40s and 50s particularly, Are you serving Christ as faithfully and as passionately now as you did when you were in your 20s and 30s? What happened? Enoch is an encouragement to us that we can. 
Thirdly, we see his consistency is expressed despite a very wicked environment. I think that's important for us. You should understand Enoch's great-grandson was Noah. Things continued to, get, to, to go from bad to worse after the fall until every inclination of the heart uh, of man was evil and God destroys humanity off the face of the earth. We'll see next week. As I said earlier, there is only one person in all of Scripture of whom it is said, one other person of whom it is said he walked with God, Enoch's great-grandson Noah. These two guys, that's it. Since you note, when Enoch walked with God, God took him and left everyone else. When Noah walked with God, God left him and took everyone else out. In the midst of his evil environment, Enoch and Noah walked with God. And I'm suggesting that in our increasingly hostile, evil culture, have you looked at the news lately? In our increasingly ungodly culture, we can live faithfully for Christ. Let's look secondly at our Hebrews 11 passage. What can be said about his walk in these verses? Don't miss it. It was a walk of faith. Second part of verse 5, verse 6 suggests it was a pleasing walk because it was a walk of faith. He saw him who was invisible by eyes of faith and walked with him every day. He was sure of the reality of the presence of God. He knew God was real by experience walking with him. Albert Einstein, great, brilliant man, once said, certainly there is a God. Don't miss that, you scientists. Albert Einstein. Certainly there is a God. Any man who does not believe in a cosmic force is a fool. But we could never know him. Tell that to Enoch. His faith consisted of believing in a God who exists and rewarded him who sought him, who wanted to know him personally. You should note at this point that uh, what happened as a result of his faith. Both Moses and our author in Hebrews tells us that Enoch never died. Genesis says it this way. Instead of saying he uh, lived so long and then he died, it mysteriously says that he was no more because God took him. The author of Hebrews shed some light on the topic. The text says that he was taken from this life so that he did not see or he did not experience death. God took him away. Took him. That's an interesting way to say it. I would suggest to you that he experienced his own personal rapture. The the word rapture is a Latin word which speaks of to be caught away or to be taken away. It goes like this. One moment he is walking on the earth, the next moment, the, the very next step he takes, he is walking in heaven. So close was his walk with his God. Once heard a song talking about Enoch which said he walked right out of this world. Wouldn't you like to do that? To have a walk so close with God that it really wouldn't matter if you died or if you didn't. Either way, the next step you took with God. Finally, we look at Jude 14 and 15 where we see this third characteristic of Enoch's walk. It was a consistent walk. It was a walk of faith. But notice also, in a, in a very 
um, uh, evil environment. It was a talking walk. He, he walked the talk and he talked the walk. Look at it again. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, angels, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way. Man, I want to preach that way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, that is God. I'm not going to exegete the text this morning. We'll wait till we get to the book of Jude, which is right before the book of Revelation. So that's going to be just a few years because I'm holding out till it happens. <laughs> but notice Enoch lived both sides. Listen, he lived both sides of effective evangelism. He walked his talk and he talked his walk. Every once in a while we hear that really cute saying that says, preach the gospel every day and if necessary, use words. Cute saying, altogether false. It's terrible. I hate it. You cannot preach the gospel without words. Back it up with a consistent life like Enoch did, but he opened his mouth. This prophecy was recorded originally, interestingly, not in Genesis. We didn't see those words in Genesis, Psalm and Jude. It was recorded originally in First Enoch, which was an apocryphal book written a little bit before the time of Christ. It was not, it was not uh, an inspired book, and this prophecy was not, uh, or, or these words were not inspired there, but they were obviously here. And again, as I said earlier, likely had a twofold uh, fulfillment, one in reference to the flood that was coming that would destroy this wicked generation, but also in terms of the second coming of Christ, which will do the same. At any rate, we see these words, uh, in these words, Enoch had a verbal testimony in the midst of an ungodly society. I, I, I doubt he was very, it, it, that it was a very popular message. I'm sure that he was, uh, was not the man of the year in Mesopotamia. He probably did not write a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But he was pleasing to God. So I would say to us today, we need to have a verbal testimony in the midst of an ungodly, wicked generation. It's not enough to just have a walk with God. We must talk the walk. I know we hear a lot about, we got to walk the talk, walk the talk. I know we hear a lot about that, and we got to live as godly people. We hear a lot about that, but we've got to talk the walk. Our, our message will not be popular either. The gospel is called a rock of offense. We begin with the truth that people are sinners in need of a Savior. Not a very popular message today. You've seen the, the, the bumper sticker, right? Born right the first time. Uh, actually, no, you weren't. Brings me to my conclusion. Look at verse 6 of Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, right object of faith, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him the right way of faith. Enoch had this witness before being taken up that he was pleasing to God. How? By faith. Interesting to note that, in Genesis, that Genesis 5 says nothing about Enoch's faith, but the author commends um, Enoch for his faith. How did he know he had faith? Well, he was pleasing to God. 
You can't please God without faith. And how is this faith described? Verse 6, two ways. First, Enoch believed that God is. I have said it before. It is not enough to say that you are spiritual, uh, but not religious. What does that even mean? What, 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 What does that mean? It is not enough to say, well, I'm a Christian. I just don't really care about the church. It is is not enough to say that I believe in a God. You've got to believe in the God. Faith must have a proper object. I want to remind you very quickly of uh, the story of Moses delivering the Israelites from Egypt. When God gave Moses the task, Moses asked him, listen, when I get down there, the Israelites are going to ask, who who sent me? Uh, who Who should I say sent me? What's your name? God. We remember the answer from Exodus chapter 3. I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. But the Septuagint, our author's preferred text, translates it this way, this way. Tell them I am the one who exists. This um, is what the author is quoting. Tell them the one who exists as the great I am sent you. Enoch believed in, lived by faith in The I am, the one who exists, don't miss it, the God of the Israelites, at a time when pluralism was rampant, a a plurality of gods was rampant. Tell them there is one true and living God, and he is, I am the one who exists. And by the way, he says in Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. So you must believe in the God of the Bible the one who exists. That's what he is saying. And second, you must believe in the God who gives promises and that he will fulfill them, that he is a rewarder. Notice the way he says it, that he is a rewarder of those who what? Seek him. How does he reward them? By a right relationship with God when you seek the right God, the true God, God's way. This has been the message of the book of Hebrews. You cannot come to God any old way. You can't make up a God. There's only one God who exists. And you cannot come to God any old way you want. There is one way to come. Even the Old Testament way pointed to the way, which is through Jesus. You cannot come any other way. And if you come to the God the way that he has prescribed, he will reward you. How? With eternal life. As you seek him, as you seek a right relationship with him.